Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by AJC and the Times of Israel. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines and help you understand what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm Sefi Kogan. And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman. The 1995 assassination of Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin was a cataclysmic event in Israeli history. It was the first nail in the coffin of the peace movement that Rabin himself had helped birth. Israeli security forces had always assumed that threats to the prime minister would come from Israel's foreign enemies like Iran or Syria or from Palestinians. The idea that a Jewish person would murder the prime minister was inconceivable, almost until the moment that Yigal Amir pulled the trigger. Amir was then a 25-year-old law student at Bar Ilan University, and he decided to throw his promising life away in order to kill a prime minister who, he feared, was ruining Israel by contemplating giving land to Palestinians. Now, 25 years later, Israeli filmmaker Yaron Zilberman has created a moving, thrilling, dramatic recreation of those awful days leading up to the assassination with his film, Incitement. Incitement won the 2019 Ophir Prize for Best Picture, Israel's equivalent of the Academy Awards, and is now playing in limited release here in the United States. Yaron joins us now to talk about the movie and share his perspective on the state of politics and extremism in Israel. Yaron, thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Sefi. Now, before we dive in, I just want to tell you, when I found out that this interview was a possibility, I decided I would go and see the show. And I went with my best friend last week. And Alex and I went. We saw the movie. It was beautiful. It was haunting. It was powerful. And then my sister, uh, my older sister, found out that I had gone. And she was furious at me. I, you know, Sefi, I don't understand why you would go, why you wouldn't tell me. Okay, fine. She has a point. I get it. And she says, don't worry about it. I'll go with a friend. And so she goes to the movie on Saturday night, and I get this text from her. Movie's about to start, but look who's sitting like two rows up. And it's a picture of President Bill Clinton and Secretary Hillary Clinton preparing to enjoy the film. And then I found out that Bill Clinton you know, spoke afterwards, and so she doesn't get to be mad at me anymore. <laughs> you got lucky. <laughs> wow. Well, Yaron, like I said, you've made a beautiful, haunting, powerful film, and I hope our listeners will seek it out in their home cities. We're not going to spoil anything about the movie because it hews very, very closely to real-world events, but I wanted to dive deep into some of the choices that you made when you were creating it, and I want to start with the name of the movie, which in English is Incitement, and in Hebrew is Yamim Noraim, which refers to, it's bas- that's basically the Hebrew way of saying high holidays, like Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, but literally it means those awful days. And I was wondering, you know, what went into those two names of the movie? Okay, so first, uh, the first uh, title that I gave the movie was in Hebrew, and that was Yamim Noraim, uh, the reason being because, yeah, it's a double play. A, on the, those days were really, really terrible days for all spectrums of political ideas and all sectors of the Israeli society, such as, you know, you have the bombs on one hand, the explosions, and you have, of course, the assassination, which is a terrible, traumatic event. So these were horrible days. At the same time, as you said, rightfully so, 
that it's the high holidays, which means these are days, 10 days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, days of atonement, days of soul searching, days of asking for forgiveness. And, and I think the movie is also so much about that, making, you know, for the Israeli society. And all of us that are involved in incitement all over the world, inflammatory work, assassinations, you know, society under, in, in an extreme tension that the violence erupts. It's about soul searching. What did we do wrong? Could we have stopped it? Uh, and those, of course, who were involved in, in actual actions that led to the event. So that's why it had that double meaning that was so important. In English, there is no double meaning to these words, you know, the literal translation. So I had to choose a new one, and I thought about, you know, what would be the right one, and I wanted something, again, that will encompass an important issue because I find the assassination to ignite something very, an important discourse, important conversation within society, especially these days and uh, all over the world. And I thought incitement captured that essence of, you know, at the end of the day, that's what the film tries to show, how the inner working of that and how hopefully in the future uh, we'll be, you know, better citizens and, and avoid that. Mm-hmm. Now, the movie follows Yigal Amir, uh, Rabin's assassin, in the year or so leading up to the murder Although it doesn't actually reveal the name of the character of the murderer. I think Yigal Amir's name is first said probably 10 or or 20 minutes into the film. But it shows his romantic challenges. It shows the anti-Mizrahi racism that he faced as a Yemenite Israeli. It shows his tough ideological mother. In some respects, it seems to indicate that he was incited not only by politicians and by rabbis, but also by his circumstances. And one thing that I was wondering is whether the movie is too sympathetic toward him. Well, it's not at all, because at the end of the day, you see an assassination and an assassin and somebody who kills a prime minister that was pushing for peace between uh, two people that were in a hostile and still in hostile uh, relationship. And therefore, somebody who kills somebody who fights for peace I think uh, has to be a, uh, you know, not somebody who, at the end of the day, that you root for or for him at all. However, I did want to tell a true story, honest story about that person. I mean, not about him. The story is about Robin's assassination, but through the eyes of the assassin. And once you describe the assassin on a psychological level, psychological thriller, that's the genre that I think this movie belongs to, then you have to tell all sides. And these are sides of his personality that I discovered during the research. So I wanted to tell the story in a more rounded way so that we can look, you know, into the eyes of the abyss, as we say, and get as much insight out of that story that, you know, that truthfulness will uh, will bring about. So that's why I went with that all the way, as opposed to say, oh, I'm not going to tell that he had his girlfriend that they were, you know, going through a journey towards getting married, you know, because if I'm not telling that, I'm not showing one aspect Mm. because you know how this relationship ended and I'm not going to say it for not to spoil it, but there is a way to end and that has to do with his temperament after and behavior also, right? It affects him significantly. I have to report on it. 
Otherwise, what's the deal here? So much of the drama in the movie comes from these small moments between Amir and his girlfriend, between Amir and his mother, or especially between Amir and his father. How much of those quiet dialogues, those personal dialogues, were you able to reconstruct based on interviews and research as opposed to, you know, what did you kind of have to simply imagine? Well, it's a combination because the events themselves are all based on research. And the words, you know, after researching for several years, reading everything that he had to say, that he said in court, in investigations, in the National Inquiry, I got a hang of the way he speaks and his logic and demeanor. And I used that, extended that into this particular conversation that I was not present, but all his answers, all the dialogue is actually part of his language and logic. So the answer is it's a combination. Mm -hmm. Rabbis, in many ways, are some of the bad guys of the film. And rabbinic texts, these kind of fundamental rabbinic texts that underpin so much of Judaism today, are shown as like these arcane manuscripts that give Amir a kind of pseudo-moral backing, right? Maimonides, the Rambam, he turns to him in order to justify killing Rabin. And it's true that extremists often find support in fundamentalist interpretations of rabbinic texts, of, of religious texts, not only in Judaism, but in, in Islam and Christianity. I'm wondering first what you think about that characterization. And I'm also wondering if you think that the political left in Israel could benefit politically from a greater fluency in those texts and a greater embrace of a Jewish religion slanted more in their favor, whether they could do that without compromising on those values and whether that might bolster the moral ground that they stand on. Okay, so you, you asked two questions, and each one of them has, you know, many, many answers, but they are complex questions. But I'll, I'll try to address whatever I can within the time limit we have. So first about the rabbis, you know, the, definitely, it's not all rabbis, of course, in Israel. That would be a complete misleading. I'm showing rabbis that are mainly uh, from the settlements. You know, uh, the West Bank, uh, rabbis of settlements, of leading settlements. And, and I think that that portrays the true story here. And I'm not saying that everybody, because that would be wrong of me, but too many, you know, too many to influence the assassination. That was too many. And yes, they used this scripture, and there was a conversation about that particular scripture as it applied to Rabin's assassination. And I think it was a huge, huge mistake, terrible mistake, that incited for the assassination. So I'm standing behind it, and I'm also showing uh, archival footage, as you know, and you see what people say in it, and it all leads to the same conclusion. But I wouldn't say that generalize that about all the religious population, and definitely not all rabbis, that would be unfair to say, and wrong. So that's on that level, but I do, you know, still being I'm very, very critical of many, many rabbis that incited. Now... As for your second question about whether the left should know more, you have to know that many, many figures, the leading figures in the left on the left side are very well versed with the religious scripture and everything religious. So it's not that they're not versed in it. I'll give you one example. She's no longer alive, but she appears in the movie, Shulamit Aloni. That's mm. her name. She used to be a prominent person of the left. Founder of the uh, Merits Party, the of, former minister of education. Exactly. And she speaks there and she says already, you know, after Bauer Goldstein's massacre, she goes on TV in the movie. You see that archive and she says that whoever listened carefully 
to the code that was spoken on Arut Sheva, which is the uh, settlement uh, radio channel. And whoever listened to, you know, what Rabbi said, knew that it was coming. So she knew it, and she says, Din Rodev, Din Moschel, she's referring to it because she knew that. She listened, she knew. And also, if you speak to her, her knowledge of uh, religious, uh, you know, scripture, matters, halakha, uh, Talmudic thought is, is huge and deep. So it's not that the left, you know, doesn't know or if they know they're going to help in any way because I don't think that's really the argument. The argument that liberals say is that religious is fantastic, but that's an individual's business and it should not affect the state. And also that Israel is a democratic Jewish state, yes, but it's democratic before everything else. That's what a liberal would say to you. So I don't think there's an issue with the religion, an issue between left and religion. Yaron, let me just close with one final question. Incitement, or hasata in Hebrew, has become a kind of buzzword in Israel today. Anytime any politician criticizes another, it's hasata, it's incitement. Whether they're coming from the left or the right, you know, you see, you see the prime minister, you see his opponents, everyone is accusing everyone of inciting everyone else. What does this movie have to say about incitement, extremism, and the state of politics in Israel today? Well, I think that the discourse... In many, many cases in Israel today, on this level of politicians and also religious leaders, etc., crossed a line where followers of the person that says that stuff could, you know, use this particular word and inflict extreme violence on another person or group. And I think that's where we are in Israel. And you've seen that time and again, especially near elections and near, you know, important events that happen politically. So, yeah, I think we crossed the line. I think you see that also in the United States with Donald Trump. And at the end of the day, it's terrible and should be stopped. But that doesn't mean that we can criticize and protest, not at all. Being critical is super important for good citizenship and for society to progress. And also, uh, you know, again, protest is an important tool of society as long as you do it without inciting to violence. That's a limit, and I think that people cross the line. Yaron, thank you for making this beautiful movie. Congratulations on the awards and on its run here in America, and good luck on all your future endeavors. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I appreciate this conversation. Thank you. Here at AJC, we talk about some pretty heavy issues. Israel, Iran, hatred of Jews. So our next guest is a pretty big leap for us. Ashley Blaker is a Jewish stand-up comedian. He is the first Orthodox Jewish comedian to be given his own BBC show, Ashley Blaker's Goyish Guide to Judaism, which returned to the air in October 2019. Now he's in New York for his latest off-Broadway show, Ashley Blaker, Goy Friendly, which premieres at the Soho Playhouse on February 3rd and runs through February 23rd. While his previous off-Broadway production, Strictly Unorthodox, was tailored for Jewish audiences, this one, he says, is not just for the Jews. It tells the story of how Ashley's close friendship with Muslim comedian Imran Youssef completely changed his life. With anti-Semitic incidents on the rise around the globe and even here in New York, Ashley hopes to make the audience laugh, but also understand a little bit more about their Jewish neighbors. Ashley, welcome to our studio. Thank you for having me. So I have to ask you right out of the gate, Mm -hmm. anti-Semitism is not funny. So how do you address that topic with humor? (laughs) 
Um, well, uh, you know, the the reality is I think anything can be funny. But uh, <laughs> So I'll, I'll <laughs> let you come to the show and judge whether I make it funny. But the whole show isn't about anti-Semitism, I should say that. There is actually a section that is about anti-Semitism. But I think the more interesting is the fact that when anti-Semitism is on the rise, there are two ways of dealing with this. There's a way of kind of hunkering down and just going, we're, we're, we're now going to stick to ourselves and, and try and just kind of protect ourselves and put up the security barriers and let's have lots of armed guards on the, on the door and search for everyone's bags and all of that stuff. Or you can kind of outreach, as it were, and try and engage with the outside world and that's what my show is about. It's very much the latter. It's about reaching out to the outside world. And in a way, this makes what's a comedy show that is, you know, hopefully nonstop funny sound incredibly dry, but uh, hopefully <laughs> demystify Judaism a little bit. Mm-hmm. That's certainly one of the aims. Okay. Well, I would say you could do both, right? Do the security, the I'm, look. I'm not advocating down, but... having no security. <laughs> I'm not saying <laughs> I'm not saying it's either or. But I'm just saying that there is a kind of you know we're very good at that, the Jews. But um, you know, I, I actually in my playbill I wrote a um, performer's note, and I can't remember it verbatim, but I said something about how you know we're very good at dividing ourselves as a as a, and one of the things that I enjoy doing. You mentioned my last show, Strictly Unorthodox. I, I, I love bringing Jews together because we're very good at kind of separating ourselves in so many different ways. You know, that whole joke about the Jewish man who lands on a desert island and he builds two synagogues, one ones that he'll go to, ones that he wouldn't ever be seen dead in. Mm-hmm. And that's like what we're like. But I do think there there is it is an important time to actually reach out a little bit. and Because I think sometimes, certainly not in any way suggesting that... We are in any way at fault for anti-Semitism, of course. But I sometimes think that actually being too insular isn't that helpful. Yeah, yeah. Well, so now you are from the UK. So uh, How did you guess? <laughs> well, the Labour Party. I have to mm. ask you about the Labour Party, I'm afraid. Um, but it's often regarded as the political party of choice by many Jews in, in Great Britain. And I'm curious how you dealt with the last election and whether or not you felt politically homeless, as I kept reading about the right. Jewish community there. I didn't myself, but I'm sure other people did. And I think that, yes, yeah, certainly in the past, for many Jews, the Labour Party would have been their home, just as much as the Conservative Party would be for many Jews mm-hmm. or Liberal Democrats. Mm-hmm. We have quite a different political system, you should know, of, to, to, to the American system anyway. But yes, I mean, it was incredible what happened over the last few years and how anti-Semitism just rose and seemed to not be dealt with at all within the Labour Party. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it was a terrible thing which has still really not really been dealt with or properly gone away. Yeah. I know there were, well, there were several vile things said, many Mm. vile things said by labor politicians. But then also Jeremy Corbyn himself was talking about the lack of irony that many British Jews seem to have. I don't know if you recall that particular uh, Yes, it was a video. Yeah, it was a video. I think it was from a a, a while ago, but actually. But he had, yes, he had said something. And there's a lot of these kind of illusions, I think is the word, because they're they're quite clever. And they're not outright. This isn't the far right. They're not marching in the street saying killed the Jews. It's a very elusive, quite clever thing of of hints and these particularly also always alluding that Jews and Israel conflating the two and you know, that whole thing about anti-Semitism. We don't mean anti-Semitism, we mean anti-Zionism. Also was that that thing that really came along with the Labour Party and I saw in certain videos of people saying, No, no, we're we're not anti Semitic at all. We like 
the right to Jews. Mm. And I think there's that thing of the good Jews and the bad Jews. And I think that's a really, you know, the good Jews are those ones that march against Israel mm. and kind of write letters to the Guardian saying that we support um, sanctioned BDS and all that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And then, then the 95% are the bad Jews. I mean, that's clearly a terrible yeah. thing. So it's been a, a really dark period. And I don't know, it'll be interesting to see in the next four or five years how things change. Yeah. Have you tried to address it with humour there? Oh, for sure. And I just did a tour in so opened in May with my friend Imran. So you mentioned Imran. Mm-hmm. So Imran and I actually did a tour together called Profit Sharing. Okay. Actually, Blake and Imran using Profit Sharing. Uh, you see, clever title. You see, <laughs> P-R-O-P-H. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> you see what I did there. And it's a, not to address it head on, because there are other people addressing this head on. And the truth is, the way you only have to look on Twitter for five minutes, especially around the time of the election, to see that it's a kind of echo chamber. People don't want to hear. They, 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 you know, you, you tweet something about Labour or Jeremy Corbyn and immediately comes back this prepared list of 20 times Jeremy Corbyn has brought a motion in Parliament that's been helpful to the Jewish community, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, it, it, no one listens to each other anymore. Mm, That's the trouble. Right. People right. just um, spout the same thing. So I'm not sure engaging in that kind of way, addressing head-on, is that helpful, actually, because people just don't want to listen. Right. I'm sure it's the same here with uh, Trump, and I'm sure there are people who are vehemently say one thing, and you just don't want to ever listen to the other side. Yes, that is that is a problem. That here. is one, exactly. <laughs> so I, I think that's something we've seen a lot, and particularly around Brexit and all all these issues that we've had in the UK and they still have. But uh, so my show, anyway, my show, look, it's a comedy show. That's the, the, the main part of it. So I'll tell you briefly, I mean, in essence, what the show's about. Yeah, tell us about the show. But then I also want to hear more mm. about Imran and your friendship. Well, so the show is about my friendship with Imran, as you okay. said. So that's the kind of, I think in film terms, they call that the MacGuffin. He's the kind of, you know, that you've ever heard that term? I don't, of, I'm not familiar with that so term. It's like, you know, you've seen the original Star Wars. I think C-3PO and R2-D2 are the MacGuffin that they're the ones that are, like, sent off into onto the desert and uh, into Tatooine, and they've got the message inside them. And essentially the whole plot revolves from them, although it's not actually about them, mm-hmm. but it starts from them. So in a way, Imran is the MacGuffin here, because it is a true story. We're good friends. We went on tour together, and he was very interested in my life. He didn't know much about Judaism. He barely ever met another Jew. We spent many hours together in the car. He was always driving because he, he's Muslim. He couldn't claim he'd been drinking, so I always had one <laughs> on there. And, and he was always asking me questions, and I kind of wanted to teach him about Judaism, but where do you start? Like, we've got 613 commandments. That's too long. We'd have to spend too long in the car. I didn't want to spend the money on gas. So um, I thought, well, I'd teach him about the Ten Commandments. And we started looking at the Ten Commandments, and I realized they're not that practical. Mm. You know, he doesn't have an ox next door, so mm-hmm. there's no he doesn't need to worry about not coveting it. And I thought I could maybe set myself the challenge of coming up with my own Ten Commandments that mm. I could, that would not only be a bit more practical, but they could actually explain what it's like to be an Orthodox Jew in 2020. And in a way, it was my friendship with him that made me reconsider my Judaism. Because essentially, I'd been living as an Orthodox Jew for the best part of 20 years. But it's only when an outsider comes along and starts challenging you that it, you start having to think about it. You start yeah. thinking about your life. So that's what the show's about. And it's, it's about me going through these Ten Commandments, my new Ten Commandments, mm-hmm. and teaching this to him. 
Okay. So do you mind sharing a few I'll, of the Ten I'll Commandments? I'll give you a few of them. So one of them is thou shalt develop obsessive compulsive disorder. Ah, okay. Which is an absolutely integral part of Orthodox Judaism. <laughs> um, but we cover a really, lot... any branch of Judaism. I, I, mean, I could probably Judaism. check that box. Right, exactly. <laughs> so we cover a lot of these areas. Um, we cover kosher food and living in a Jewish area. We talk about the curse of praying in public. And there's it covers a lot of ground. It really covers a lot of ground in the show. And then uh, and then the story, actually, when we finished that, the story has a continuation because of how Imran reacted and then what we went off and did something together, which I don't want to spoil because that's part of the narrative. Um, but it's a really funny show. I mean, I, it, it really is. I'm, I'm super proud of it. So as you say, I did the show called Strictly Unorthodox. It was aimed at a Jewish audience, all Jews, not just Orthodox, you know, reform, conservative, unaffiliated, but still all Jews. And mm-hmm. I think it's a really, I really wanted to do something that everyone could come and enjoy um, that would be in a language that everyone can understand, but that is serious, but does not scrimp on the jokes at all. Mm-hmm. It's the funniest show I've ever done this by miles because I've really, but still has got all the serious stuff. And we do discuss anti-Semitism and there's some real takeaway as well from it. Excellent. So Excellent. The show's name is Ashley Blaker Goy Friendly. It's at the Soho Playhouse here in New York City from February 3rd to 23rd. Thank you for joining us, Ashley. Pleasure. Thank you. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. And joining us at our Shabbat Table this week is Anne Gordon, Deputy Ops and Blogs Editor at the Times of Israel. And when you're talking with your family and friends at your Shabbat table this weekend, what are you going to be talking about? So you ask what we'll be discussing at my Shabbat table this week. I'm guessing that we'll begin with the fact that the upstairs neighbor's contractor drilled through my ceiling and left a big hole. I mean, don't you stop once you realize that you misjudged the distance you were supposed to drill? But then I'm guessing we'll move on to the fact that I've been podcasting a great deal. My presence here on People of the Pod only makes that point. For me, this is a big deal because I'm one of those people who always hated her voice on tape. I'm dating myself with that expression, I know. I just mean that I never liked how I sounded on a recording. And now I'm working on spreading recordings that have a lot of my voice on them. Basically, I discovered that everyone hates how they sound to themselves. So, why so many podcasts? I actually jumped on the podcasting bandwagon fairly early. I'm a co-founder of the organization Chochmat Nashim. I know you had my colleague Shoshana Keats-Jaskal as a guest early in the series. And we three co-founders, that's me and Shoshana and also Rachel Stomel, we began a podcast that is produced by Scott Kahn at jewishcoffeehouse.com. We released an episode of that today, Thursday, and we were discussing the phenomenon of Orthodox married women covering their hair. It was a personal discussion in a lot of ways, though we also addressed the halakha, the Jewish law, and sociological implications, and also the social ones. We have different personalities and different priorities to some extent, and I think that came across in the episode, so it makes a fun listen. Or I think so anyway. It also helps that Scott does a superlative job of getting out the ums and the likes and the you knows and so on. He raises the bar in podcasting. But the thing is that the podcast I've been giving the most of my time to doesn't have any of that kind of level of polish. It's a month old and we've already released 34 episodes, which of course is because it follows the Dafyomi. Dafyomi means the daily page, and it is basically the plan to learn one page of Talmud, that's a double-sided folio page, every day, until 2,711 pages have been learned. It takes almost seven and a half years. I co-host this new podcast with Yardena Azband. We call it Talking Talmud. And it's tricky because Yardena is in New York, and I'm in Jerusalem, 
but we found an app that lets us record together across the miles and we pray for its well-being of the app that is because we think it's the only one like it out there and the sound is okay but we really just love it because we get to teach Talmud to hundreds of people I mean it's a 20-minute podcast or 15 minutes or maybe even 12 Yardin and I both wanted to learn the daf this plan for going through the entire Talmud and we figured that this is one way to keep ourselves honest we weren't going through all the words of the daf. There are a lot of ways to do that, including many excellent podcasts. We've been recommending Michelle Cohen-Farber's Hadron podcast, and our Talking Talmud is also available via the Hadron site. What we are doing is having a conversation, and we're looking to engage our listeners in the conversation. After we've prepared the daf of the day independently, we convene via the technology to talk about an issue or an idea, or two or three, from that given page something that we learned and we found interesting enough to want to talk about. The funny thing is that we keep independently choosing the same topics, but we figure it out. Basically, we believe that the Gemara can be accessible and that there is always something interesting to find. We're a little intimidated still. It's a big project and we're navigating full-time jobs and families and a seven-hour time zone difference, but we figure it's also a little project. One 10 to 20-minute podcast episode at a time. Thank you so much for that. I suspect I know the answer to this, but have you ever had a loved one, a relative that you are simply crazy about, post something objectionable on social media? I've never seen anything objectionable on social media in my life, actually. <laughs> well, uh, what about a family member who has posted something <laughs> anti-Semitic? No. No, oh, I thought I knew the answer. And how about you? Yeah, well, I recently got to make an awkward phone call to a relative I adore to alert him that he had posted something anti-Semitic on Facebook and he might consider taking it down. Now, I was confident that he had no idea what he was implying with his post. It was intended as a harmless political statement. After all, he, like many others, is not happy with the impeachment proceedings against President Trump. He believes Congressman Adam Schiff has created a highly partisan attack on the commander-in-chief. So, to express his disgust, he posted a meme that has been making the rounds on social media for a while. It's based on a rumor claiming that Schiff's sister was married to the son of George Soros, a Hungarian Jewish billionaire, often painted by anti-Semites as a puppet master in the Jewish conspiracy to build a new world order. The post shows photos of Soros, Schiff, a woman identified as Schiff's sister, and a man identified as Robert Soros, the billionaire's son. It's stamped with the slogan, you can't make this up. But in fact, you can. <laughs> Adam Schiff doesn't have a sister. And yes, Robert Soros married a woman named Melissa Schiff, but unless she's a distant cousin, she is no relation to the congressman. When I called my family member to discuss it, I was right. He had no idea this was anti-Jewish. In fact, he thought Soros had Nazi ties and hated Israel. He did not even know he was Jewish. All he saw was an opportunity to pick on Schiff. But he did suspect it wasn't true. And he wasn't all that surprised when I told him the post had been flagged by Facebook as fact-checked and proven false. About 90% of the political rhetoric out there is probably fabricated, he told me, but who cares if it's true? I laughed because that's what you do when you don't want to bite the head off someone you really love. And I replied, you're saying that to a journalist. Of course I care. Now, as a journalist, I don't pass judgment on others' political or ideological beliefs. And frankly, working for AJC has not changed that. But these are strange times we live in, and it calls for a new kind of advocacy. By journalists, for journalists. By Jews, for Jews. 
I dreaded that conversation. I will not lie. I didn't want him to be offended or put off by what he might interpret as self-righteous. But fortunately, he has a marvelous sense of humor. We went on to talk about Israel, Iowa, grandchildren. And later, he sent me a funny meme to make sure it was appropriate before he posted it on Facebook. (laughs) It was a wonderful window into the mindset of people who are so incensed about today's politics, they sometimes don't see straight. They mean no harm. They simply don't understand who sees this stuff, who processes this stuff, and who springs to actions that can indeed cause harm. That's the awkward conversation we'll be talking about at our Shabbat table this week. Sefi, how about you? Well, at my Shabbat table this week, I'll be talking about Shabbat. More specifically, I'll be talking about the Green Sabbath Project, started by Dr. Jonathan Schorsch, a professor of Jewish religious and intellectual history at the University of Potsdam outside Berlin. Schorsch, like so many people around the world, is worried about climate change and the impact that it will have on our planet. Schorsch's pitch for the Green Sabbath Project is as follows. Is there nothing you can do about the environment? That's right. Nothing. Maybe one of the best things you can do. One day every week, do nothing. Take a weekly day of rest. Make it a real Sabbath for you, for Earth. Don't drive, don't shop, don't build. Take a walk, eat with friends, play or read with your kids. Sing, meditate. It's become popular in recent years to promote things like a tech Sabbath. The argument is that unplugging from phones and email one day a week is good for mental health. But Schorsch has something far bigger than individual mental health in mind. It stands to reason, he argues, that avoiding using electricity or doing other polluting activities like driving or flying for one day each week could reduce fossil fuel emissions by up to about 14% or one-seventh of our global total. Could that be enough to pull our planet back from the dangerous edge we're teetering on? As Schorsch says, quote, I am not calling for more traditionalist observance in general by Jews or Christians for biblical or rabbinic Shabbat in its orthodox Jewish guise. Our Sabbath days must become a time of active avoidance of environmental vandalism, a time for programmatic, congregational, and individual reflection on how we are undoing creation. Green Sabbaths will provide a recurring greenhouse for incubating the required collective consciousness and willpower, the ultimate renewable energies to make the solutions reality, end quote. As Schorsch suggests, maybe it's time more of us started doing nothing to fight climate change one day a week. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify, or learn more at AJC.org slash People of the Pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC and the Times of Israel. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC and the Times of Israel. Our producer is Kukong Do. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People Love the Pod. 